0: Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Sex is Good News podcast with Sarah and Brian. Um, We are so excited to get to continue the conversation. Specifically, this one, this is a good one. This is a good one because we have been asking you guys to send in your questions. Um, As we've gone through, you have had questions for sure, as Sarah and I have. And so we compiled a list here of the things you guys were asking and sat down with Steve and Jeremy and just start asking those questions and working through them. So we hope you enjoy the conversation, um, and we're excited for what God is teaching all of us.
1: Amen. Let's dive in. Well, hello. Uh, we are back this week for a special episode of Sex is Good News. We are going to do a Q&A segment. This is Sarah. I'm back with Pastor Brian Williams, Jeremy Mass, and Steve Hobbs, who are, I feel like, now our resident um, experts, I would say, to some degree, um, as far as being licensed um, therapists and those who have spent a lot of time looking at areas of sexual addiction um, and the like, and they have been voices into this conversation who we are very thankful for. And this week, we're going to look at some of the responses that you guys have given us and hopefully try to answer some questions and lead um, some some conversation pieces you guys can take home with you. So thank you guys for coming back.
2: Of course. Glad to be happy, here. Thanks yeah, happy for, to thanks for the
3: to be here. invitation.
1: Of course. We're excited. So we're just going to jump right in. Um, one of our first questions, I think it, it's been a popular is the right word, but a definitely a, a subject that people are interested in continuing to explore, and I think rightfully so, and that's centered on our conversation regarding masturbation. Um, and one of the questions that I think was thoughtful came up that uh, is asking just if masturbation is a response from wanting to to connect with someone or, or really in the context of sex mean this thing that, that can connect us, the physical acts, um, then why is it so common for people to start at a young age, without any context, or how why do people fall into this in a way that like we've said can can disconnect people
3: so this is this is a good question, and this is Steve Hobbs by the way so you guys know my voice if you <laughs> couldn't identify it um, so I think when I think there's it's important to distinguish the difference between the means of a behavior and a pr- the purpose of a behavior so Just from a general sense, the experience of pleasure is our brain's way of encouraging us to engage in that behavior again and again more frequently.
0: Mm.
3: And that's usually because those behaviors, whether it's sex or food or something else pleasurable, relaxing, sleep, um, usually because those behaviors play a role in keeping us alive and helping our species to to survive. as, so it's helping us to protect us as individuals, as families, or as, you know, larger groups than that. So for example, um, you know, to use a non-sexual example, we get pleasure from eating foods that provide us with nutrition and calories, right, mm-hmm. that, that are essential, and that's essential for survival. So fruit, meat, bread, sugar even, right, because that it doesn't have a lot of nutrition, but it certainly gives us calories, which we need, which weren't so easy to come by for our ancestors even hundred years ago um, and we don't get pleasure from eating items that don't have any kind of nutritional or caloric value you know it's there's very few people that go around eating rocks and wood and poison as <laughs> our brain tells us this isn't good for me this isn't beneficial so ultimately the the pleasure of sexual stimulation is it provides a similar uh, incentive for us um, because it 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 incentivizes us to engage in that behavior more frequently making it more likely for us to reproduce and making it more likely for us to connect with others who will help us stay alive Um, because the pleasure because the behavior is pleasurable um, doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to use it for um, the ultimate purpose of connecting with others so it doesn't stop being pleasurable just because that's how we use it. So, uh, for example, um, if you're, let's just say we're going to have an analogy of a car where the purpose of a car is to transport people and things, places. Right. But that doesn't mean that we can't get some, and we'll do that more frequently if we enjoy driving. If we enjoy driving the car, if we enjoy where we're going, if we enjoy all that kind of stuff. But there's also the possibility to enjoy a drive for its own sake, you know, to go on a Sunday drive by the beach, for example. So even if you are never actually going anywhere, if you're just leaving home and then coming back home, um, you could start to use that car for almost an abbreviated purpose, kind of for the pleasure alone, rather than for the purpose that it was intended um, to, reproduce and to connect with others doesn't always necessarily mean that's a bad thing um but it can be used for bad things
1: Mm. yeah thank you i think that's a great a great unpacking of that um and yeah it's such a good point that they're going back to the idea that there's there's goodness in the design and um there's kind of this positive feedback loop or negative i get those two kind of mixed up there's a purpose behind it to come back to it which i think um can kind of lead into our next question um which is kind of the why of like why you know like why is sex and sexual behavior so addicting we've talked about pleasure we've talked about this you know like it's a good thing that we want to go back to but i think there's a lot we can lose a lot of self-control in those areas whether it's sex food etc but like specifically why is it potentially harmful when it comes to sex and maybe even sex outside of its context of marriage like what What is happening like what patterns are we're forming that that make it difficult um, when we when we don't have a handle on how to use that or we don't we aren't using it um, in the way that it's been um, intended for our health and our and our good and the good of others
2: so the question is why is sex and sexual behavior so so addicting Yes and, and how can we um Understands its potential harms.
1: Yes and yeah. maybe okay. even if you want to break it down on like a, a neurological or biological level of like we clearly know that there's the emotional side But there's there's something physical that's happening in us um, in our brains as well
2: Well Steve, I think you said it really well in that um, we are programmed to engage in behaviors that um advance the species that, that ensure our survival. And uh, sex is very much one of those things, of course. Um, so just on that level, um, knowing that we are wired that way, it's, it's very easy to engage in behavior, um, sexual behavior that um, can uh, become um, out of control, that is because it's pleasurable and because uh, we naturally seek it um it can easily become um something that becomes destructive especially if we um expose ourselves to um, sexual behaviors or forms of uh, sexual content uh like um, more um you might say extreme or or more um that is anything that might be um, outside of the bounds of uh, what we might call, or what I call, uh, vanilla porn, so to speak. Right? Um, more extreme forms of pornography, like um, you know, some clients talk to me about violent pornography, or, or um, um, you know, some some more. Um, that that's an extreme example. Um, but um, when we when we uh, consume that kind of pornography. Um, it can be, um, of course, very destructive and, and even more addictive than um, than other um, um, less explicit forms of pornography. For example, um, why it's harmful. You know, the boundaries of marriage and in scripture teaches this for a reason. Is that there there are boundaries that that are healthy for for us to um, keep in mind when we think about sexual behavior and and operating outside of those boundaries. Um, is certainly a choice that we can make, but then um it exposes us or it sets up the potential to experience the consequences of um, engaging that behavior outside of those boundaries right and um and I think another question was um about um, the possibility of um uh, punishment or and, and when I think about punishment, I think about um experiencing the natural consequences of um, of our behavior mm. um and so when it comes to, for example, sex outside of marriage, um, you know, there are a lot of different ways that we could talk about that. A lot of practical examples that we might um, consider. But um, very practically speaking, there there are more. Um, there's more potential for for harm um, simply because it's outside of um, a um, consensual committed uh, relationship where where um, two um, individuals have committed to each other um, to um, have this um, very um, uh, deep um, emotional and uh, spiritual and sexual bond mm-hmm. and um, and bonding with someone outside of um, that kind of relationship um, it can create problems and we need to look no further than um, than some of the problems like like uh, like disease, for example, that's in terms of biology, that's that's a biol or a biological um, um, outcome or, or possibility that we might then expose ourselves to, right? Yeah.
3: And those are good examples, really good examples. Um, and 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 uh, it obviously goes beyond uh, the pornography that Jeremy mentioned, but but sometimes yeah. addiction can be not can be behavior, not just, not just the pornography. So there's people who, instead of wanting to uh, view those kind of images or view those kind of videos, they actually go out and do those kind of things. So that increases the amount of danger in itself. I would also say even more broadly than that, um, even if we're not thinking about extreme sexual behavior or disease, which... Uh, I guess what I'd say extreme is like dangerous sexual behavior, right? Or diseases, things that would really endanger us. Um, I think those are good reasons to uh, put a hold on uh, the potential to become addicted to sexual behavior. Um, but those aren't the only reasons, because I think when when we engage in sexual behavior with someone, we are risking connecting to them, mm. Right? We don't only connect, and, and that connection mechanism of sex doesn't only work with people who are healthy with us, or unhealthy for us.
1: Yeah,
3: It connects us to people, can connect us also to people who are unhealthy, and can also get us in, into relationship patterns that are unhealthy. So even if I don't stay with an individual unhealthy person, I can start um, the sexual behavior can reinforce itself over time so that the pattern of, rela- of the way I relate to other people is unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And whether we're, we're in an unhealthy relationship with an individual or an unhealthy relationship with many, many people, that is a dangerous place for us to be. And the reason marriage is so important is because it is structured by society and by God to be a very high level commitment. It's not something that people fall into or they're not supposed to, right? That's why when we hear about someone who went to Vegas and got married by Elvis, why we have that exact reaction, Sarah, we go, Oh boy. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause, yeah. Cause we all know there's more to the story than that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Before and after. Mm. And inherently we know this is something that should have been done more cautiously. Mm-hmm. Considerately, it's, it's very much a big ticket purchase, right? And so if someone rushes out and, and, and makes a big ticket purchase without really considering what they're buying.
0: Uh-huh. And if you
3: afford it, then they've probably done a foolish thing. In the same way, marriage is, is meant to help us really consider if we are ready for that kind of purchase, so to speak, and and also, if the item we're purchasing, the per- the person we're marrying, is uh, something that is worthy of us spending that that investment on. Yeah,
0: that's
3: so good, Steve. I think um, what you
0: like, kind of for both of you guys, what the big ticket purchase of the sexual encounter, whatever that sexual encounter is, um, is the connection that's made. And that connection is deep and it's, it's significant. And that's why we need to be so cautious as we step into it. And that's also why um, it can play out in such um, addictive ways with, and lead to further deeper things addiction wise um, that maybe people didn't expect to get to because it, it the, the bond is so powerful. Um, and I did some research um just trying to figure this out. This is, kind of came from a while back in my own journey of thinking through things and exploring and figuring out, okay, what, where, why do I desire certain things and what, where does that come from? How do I deal with that? How do I navigate that? How do I move past that? How do I find health? Um, and one of the things that really helped me is seeing uh, what the mechanism for that connection was. Um, and it also helped me see what God intended it for. Um, where you see like the just these these are three neurochemicals that I want to maybe I'm saying I'm wrong or uh, you guys can correct me because I'm we're flipping roles here. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but these three like I'll just kind of walk through what what stood out to me on these. So one uh, one of the things that's released during a sexual encounter through that excitement. Um, that our brain releases that God created us so that this would release is dopamine, and and that like, from what I understand, very accurately focuses our attention and energy. So, it, it, when that's released, it it really causes us to ignore negatives. Um, it, it causes us, it, it triggers feelings of ecstasy, and it creates like a very powerful dependency, a longing for for that to come again. And so, in a healthy marriage relationship this is a very good thing this is a really good thing because when you're that bond that purchase you're making um it it causes us to focus completely on the other person and to ignore their negatives which is a really needed thing in marriage
3: (laughs) (laughs) we need that um we need that Yeah, I wouldn't say ignore, but at least I mean, initially, certainly, right in that infatuation phase, we tend to ignore stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think we want to ignore those things for too long, Uh, (laughs) um, and I don't think we, a healthy person, does. (laughs) Um, But uh, but yeah, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's good. So
0: maybe ignore is the wrong word there. Maybe it's not ignore.
1: It helps um, but, feel your resolve, because, like, you're going back to say it's, I mean, I've never been married, but, like, that bonding of, like, you've made that commitment already, so you're, like, we're gonna keep going, and I can, it helps.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah, it's neat, and, and that's where, like, that, that bonding that can be hijacked, that, that mechanism can be hijacked to bond us to things that are unhealthy, um, or people that are unhealthy. They're
1: not lasting.
0: Um, Another one uh was norepinephrine, Nora how do I say that one? Norepinephrine?
2: norepinephrine? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, and from what I understand that one is this when this is released, it, it causes things to be seared into our brain. So we remember them. So so that we don't forget them. And um that makes so much sense to me. It was like, Oh, that makes so much sense that this is released that in a healthy environment in a healthy marriage relationship, those experiences those sexual encounters with your, with your wife or your husband um, would be seared. Those details of the intimate experience would be seared into your brain so that you can remember them and recall them with fondness. And that would bring you closer so that even when you're not engaged in a sexual way, you see them and are remembering those things and drawn into the other person and drawn towards the other person. I think of like a wedding night or a first kiss or things that, that just trigger with such a wonderful thing. And it makes sense how, outside of a covenant relationship of marriage, when if that chemical is being released in other places, that it could kind of muddy the water,
1: mm-hmm.
0: of of what we're, remembering and recalling, you know, whether it's porn or past sexual experiences.
3: Um, yeah, and I'd and I would, I would say on that, that for, for people who are able to have that, to, to keep that sexual experience as a real, um, not a novel experience, but something that's somewhat unique, you know, something that's directed into towards a particular person, then you then norepinephrine will continue to you know you'll you'll associate those memories with that in, individual person but if you're jumping from relationship to relationship or even worse encounter to encounter it's no longer special and you're you're going to end up not really remembering very much at all about it because ultimately there's nothing very unique about it and there's nothing very special about it and so unfortunate and and what that will tend to do is Decrease the amount of norepinephrine that will be released during those encounters and will make it more difficult for a person to have those special memories when they really want to make them with someone special and they're someone who they're committed to.
2: Yeah, you're talking about uh, tolerance, Steve, which is how we um, can um, experience uh, or, or desire, um, more and more of, um, something that is becoming addictive to us. Um, for example, the, um, uh, the, um, alcohol drinker, um, needs to drink more to get the same effect, right? Um, if, Behavior is becoming addictive. One of the ways in which we can tell is that it's um, got diminishing returns, right? I think we talked about this in a previous episode, um, and there is there there is something that's not um, you know sort of wonder about that word special. You're very much right in the sense that it's not um, it's not in the context or these these encounters aren't happening in the context of a committed, a meaningful special relationship. Um, I think to the individual who is struggling with and um, is is deepening with uh, or getting deeper into addictive behavior, something about the seeking um, of that experience, um, at least for the first time um, that they sought that experience and what keeps them going back, there's something that was deeply um, special or um, that is they they experience that in, in a way that that um, it's meaningful to their to their survival emotionally right it's it's the um, it 's a very powerful solution to a profound emotional problem and um, if if uh, one has experienced trauma or um, or or some other kind of vulnerability to to addiction um, that 's going to um, make them much more likely to uh, develop problems uh, for that reason, right? Bonding to something, even though it's unhealthy to us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense that I, I think for um, the person who's questioning whether they are addicted to something or, or they're moving down that road, the diminishing return is a really good question to be asking a really good litmus to kind of be just if you're like I don't know I don't know if I am well is there any diminishing return is there an escalation that you that you feel like compelled towards it's maybe not even a distinct decision it's almost like being compelled towards it um the last one here that stood out to me was oxytocin um which is uh like about cuddling (laughs) Uh, from what I understand this is like you know we've had two kids and like the importance of that like skin-to-skin contact for a mother and a baby um, right after uh, the birth or things like that like that's a moment when oxytocin is released in heavy amounts it bonds the mother to the child it's like heavy bonding and oxytocin really is a component of that bonding um, God designed us that that would release in those moments when we need to bond when we need to emotionally connect in heavy and deep ways um, and that's one of the things that is released during the sexual experience um, and so it, it makes again in a, in, a, in a covenant relationship it makes a lot of sense uh, that that bond would happen when know we hold hands when we embrace when we kiss uh, that it would be it would be forging a deep bond that that would last through whatever storm it it just it just bonds us Um, you know I think of like uh, how with my kids there's a lot of things my son does that frustrate me but I love him (laughs) I love him so much I care so deeply for them and so I'm going to pursue him even through, uh, his two year old tantrums. (laughs) Like I'm going to pursue him through them because I want him and desire him. Uh, And maybe that's because oxytocin at some point was released in my brain or continues to be in heavy doses in different places. Um, and so in a similar way, like having that sort of bond with my wife is so important to be able to have something that's going to weather the storms of life. Mm -hmm. Um, and that sex plays a key role in that, is what, what a neat thing. What a beautiful thing that sex plays a role in fortifying relationship um, so that it could be stable through things
3: that, through a world that's not. I just think that's really cool. Yeah, it's well said, Brian. Yeah, I would say the the dopamine is, is the neurochemical that makes us want to seek sex, period. Oxytocin is the neurochemical that makes us seek sex with a particular person we're bonded to. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the bonding neurochemical, right? Correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: That's profound. And I think I, I just love how you have kind of all touched on the fact that it's it's designed because it's good for our, our survival and our flourishing. And I think it's, I mean, even just like on a, a not a lower level, but we've all been in quarantine and like, we haven't been able to hug people unless it's your immediate family. And I think <laughs> I think this is working as a single person, but like that alone, like I was, I remember when someone first told me early on, like hugging someone actually can increase like a sense of trust without like speech or without like even a lot of history, just like that physical closeness. And it just speaks to how powerful, like our physicality is and how it is. So it's wired in us. It's not something that we just create Um, and even talking to friends who, I think I hear this a lot from my male friends, especially where they're like, yeah, well, for women, like those bonding experiences are a lot more intense during sex. It's not as big of a deal for guys, but then the same friends later on will share how there's like, there's that one relationship, and it's usually their first relationship that still like has that hold in their heart. It like brings a lot of pain to them, and um, I think that's something we can learn from, and of course, like still have healthy, flourishing relationships later, but just to be mindful of how we, how we express that and to know that, I don't know, this is something that is, is so good, but it's to know what it's for and what's happening with even like nonverbal and not even just like directly emotional cues that it is affecting us emotionally and how we view ourselves and others, um, which kind of, we've talked about kind of integrated self in all of this which leads into our next question. Someone was wondering, and um, it's simply this, but do partners really have to be spiritually aligned in order to have a healthy sex life? And and really what, what, in a greater sense, what does that mean to be spiritually aligned or as scripture says, equally yoked and how important is that in or out of marriage? Um, If you marry someone who isn't a believer, does that really make a difference? And how does that play into into your sex lives?
3: So whenever I hear a question that has um, no exceptions, I'm always hesitant, right? <laughs> so the words like, all, does it always? Does it never? Sure. Does it happen, yeah. Right. Those kind of things. I'm all. There's a little red flag in my mind that goes off and go, just says, okay, hold on, wait a second, be be careful here. Um, what I would say in, in general, do partners have to be spiritually aligned to have a healthy sex life? I would say, I don't think there's any guarantees either way. Mm. I think there are, um, there's, we increase likelihood when we do things uh, the best way, but there's no guarantee. So for example, I would say that you know a couple who is spiritually aligned makes developing developing a a mutually healthy and hopefully uh, pleasurable and enjoyable, satisfying sex life more likely, but it doesn't make it inevitable,
1: right? Mm -hmm.
3: There are many, there are couples out there, for example, who are very spiritual aligned and don't have a healthy sex life and really struggle with that. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, there's also couples out there who, I've worked with these couples that they say the only good, the only thing in their life that's any good is their sex life and they're miserable in the rest of their life. And ultimately, in case you're interested, I've never, none of those have ever said that that having a good sex life was enough. Um, Mm -hmm. They're they're all miserable, and many of them, if not all of them, choose to separate at some point because it's just not enough. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, what I would say, though, is that it makes it much more likely that um, to the extent that you're going to need to work on developing a mutually healthy sex life that it's going to be easier if you're spiritually aligned um and i would say that being spiritually aligned includes a shared understanding of who god is um a sh- enough not not total but sufficient shared uh, means of worshiping and, and 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 living out your your spiritual life you know, the kind of church you like to attend, um, those kind of things, spiritual practices, and then also more broadly sufficient goals and how to live, how you want to live your life. You know, where do you see your calling in life? I think those things, those are things that will help you be spiritually aligned and the more aligned you are in those ways, the easier it's going to be to develop a healthy sex life with someone you're committed to. I, I totally agree
0: with you, Steve. I think that, uh, maybe we should jump in sometime when we do our relationship preaching series, sermon series, we'll definitely jump into second Corinthians six fourteen and talk about, okay, what's actually being said there about being equally yoked. Um, cause there's a lot to speak on on that. And I don't want to take up our whole time, um, diving into that. Cause I think you answered it really well, Steve. And, um, uh, this is a question that I've received a lot from different people. Um, asking about, well, but I like this girl or, or this guy asked me out. How do I respond to that? Because I do really like him. And, and I think the answer most often isn't that there's you, you know, it's not an always never. It's, it's more of a, well, it's easier. <laughs> it's more likely um, mm-hmm. to be in a better place when you have an alignment in this way. It doesn't mean impossible, but um, it's, it's, it's introducing a new complication that makes something that's already
1: complicated more complicated. That's a good way of, that is a good way of putting it. I look forward to that relationship series. Um, So kind of thank you both for that. Thank you all for that. Um, Shifting gears a little bit to kind of back to this concept, I guess in that too, just in singleness, we've talked a lot about, you know, like there's aim and there's things that we are um we work through because we could still be, you know, kind of working out what it means um to either use or explore sexuality in our singleness. But how do we how do we celebrate or recognize our sexual side um while being single or in dating relationships? Um kind of and maybe we've talked a little bit about, you know, is masturbation good or bad, but maybe that aside, like how do we how do we celebrate or how do we explore that? As a single person or someone who is dating, who isn't there yet, who can't fully engage in a healthy um, sexual relationship.
2: Yeah, I felt that this question was really asking. uh, You know, um, it's asking how do we celebrate? How do we recognize that? But I think, I think the real question is. is there, um, how can we um, deal with, with our sexuality? That is, our, our desire to be sexual and to act on those urges and or, or the, that uh, experience in ourselves. Um, and I think, you know, the, the distinction between having the desire to um, um, act on those urges or, or the, the sexual desires or, or the sexual activity itself, uh, separating that from... Um, um, or, or recognizing that that's an outcome of of who we are as sexual beings, uh, I think making that distinction is is really helpful here because certainly there are ways to recognize and um, and even acknowledge and celebrate who we are as sexual beings um, outside of actually engaging in uh, sexual activity. Um, certainly, um, uh, talking these kind of conversations, uh, for example, that that we're having. Is, is one way that we can acknowledge and, um, think deeply about what it means to be sexual, um, as, as followers of Christ and, um, exploring that with, uh, with people that, uh, you trust, uh, that are emotionally safe for you, um, to, um, seek any healing that you may need, uh, in terms of uh, the sexual uh, trauma that you may have had or, or, um, uh, finding some support in that to get some um, get some healing uh, would certainly be one way I think to uh, acknowledge ourselves and uh, and to continue our um, our growth as sexual persons.
3: Mm. Yeah, I think that's good. Um, I would also say that it's so interesting even the way we ask we talk about this kind of stuff because whenever we say our sexual side or the way we act sexually we are presuming that we're talking about erotic sexuality, Mm -hmm. right? That's just how we talk about it. When when we talk about when we say having sex, we're presuming it's erotic sexuality, but we're, there's so much, we're so much more than uh, sexuality, so much more than the erotic.
1: Yeah.
3: You know, um, I mean, and it's going to sound kind of funny as as I think of these, even as I think these, some of the examples, because um, because of that tendency to see or to understand sexuality as erotic, but when I think about like Brian, you brought up um, like a wedding, you know, or our or honeymoon, a or first night, you know, a wedding night, those kind of things. That is an erotic sexual experience, but the whole wedding is, in many ways, reflects sexuality. Right? There's a man, there's a woman, we have it's not like, and we're not siding with one side or the other, but, you know, it's interesting. We ask, you know, who are you, you know, are you here for the bride or the groom, you know, and, and having things like um, times with time with the groomsmen, you know, that's a sexual experience, not because it's erotic sexually, but because the men are reinforcing ideally the the celebration of, of who this man will be in his marriage and the, the, bride and her bridesmaids are doing the same thing for the bride. Um, and, and that's wonderful. And what a wonderful way to celebrate that, mm-hmm. uh, to have those kind of gatherings. Um, I, uh, I very much mourn the, the loss of sex, sexual specific, sex specific groups in our society, you know, and oftentimes we'll use the word gender specific uh, now. But, you know, when there were groups, you know, the women's club, the men's club, the boy scouts, the girl scouts, where where men could go and be just with men, women could go and just be with women. Not that that's all that was needed, but there's something that's wonderfully reinforcing about that for for each sex when we're able to do that. And I think finding places to celebrate um, the non-erotic sexual parts of us can be a wonderful opportunity. a wonderful way to celebrate and recognize our sexual side, It's obviously it's not going to give us that sexual release of the erotic and the orgasm and all that kind of thing. Um, so it, it's not a replacement, but it certainly can be a wonderful um, addition to the, the purely erotic
1: view of sexuality. That's really good. That's really good. and you kind of answered a little bit. Um, another question I think is tangential, because as you've said, we have kind of, maybe it's not a complete spectrum, but you have a categorization of the erotic and then the not. And I think with that, um, something, you know, like I've experienced and talked to many others about is that sometimes we can fall into like self-objectification when it comes to like our sexual identity as meaning when we really, prioritize how we see ourselves in a way as desirable sexually um, to others in an erotic sense. Um, And I think that, I mean, I can only really speak from a female side, but that can lead to many other like ways of disordered thinking or disordered um, relationships when we're trying to engage with people of the same or opposite gender. And this question kind of goes along with that of how how do we really reframe the way we see ourselves as, as more than sexually desirable. And in those groups, maybe what makes that special about spending time with others of the same gender or in those, yeah, in those very specific ways? Um, are, are there specifics and how and why is that important to like unwire that?
2: Well, in terms of uh, self object, <laughs> self objectification. You can, it's, you uh, can do it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I need another cup we of coffee, enough. right? We're up, we're up, we're up. Uh, that's right. Help me remember. Um, <laughs> 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 um, you know, the, this um, this question is um, pointed because self objectification it's it's a way of talking about. Um, you know, just what you were saying, Sarah, of, of seeing yourself um, and, and your worth only in terms of your sexual desirability or attractiveness. And, and um, so that, you know, one's self-esteem becomes based in one's um, uh, sexual desirability or um, sexual activity. Um, and um, this can happen in a number of different ways, but, um, you know it's um, poignant for me, I think, because uh, oftentimes there's been some kind of um, uh, trauma that that leads to um, uh, this kind of thinking or this way of um, viewing ourselves it 's not always the case um, but it's but it's a way of um, you might say um, debasing or um, or um, dissociating from yourself. Um, reducing yourself to um, an object, uh, really for um, the pleasure of others, um, and, and seeing yourself in that light. And so, when we think about that, um, and, and how to start healing from that, um, you know, the, the, um, the question I sort of wonder about first is, um, first of all, how did we get here? Understanding how this um, pattern took shape in your life, relational patterns like uh, self objectification and it is a relational pattern we 're talking about um, we 're talking about uh, sexual behaviors erotic behaviors um, and, and addictive behaviors those are those are sexual um, and relational um, patterns or ways that we get caught up in um, these um, harmful or destructive uh, ways that sex can be used so when we when we think about that I, I think it 's always helpful to start with first um, understanding um, your story, understanding um, uh, the experiences of of that self objectification and and how that came to be because I think with um, understanding there can be and, and i'm this is a little broad, I know, but with understanding, there can be then um, the acknowledgement of um, those deeper and wounded parts of ourselves. Um, that um, self objectification is often trying to albeit in a harmful way um, trying to either heal or to um, provide some some kind of salve emotionally for that for that pain and so understanding it that way um, then then can um, help us to reveal those hidden parts of ourselves that are in need of healing and um, and of um, Uh, connection.
3: Yeah, really well said, uh, Jeremy. Um, and, and I think the great thing about when we do heal those sides of us, what we find is that, um, we've, we've, our focus as to what is sexually desirable and what is desirable in general has been much too narrow, right? So a person has thought you know to be desirable i need to be sexually desirable and to be sexually desirable i need to be sexually desirable in this particular way right so this particular kind of person and that's how i can um feel affirmed feel valued feel like i have integrity Um, to take it out of a a trauma context i i i think for me is helpful I, i i remember these experiences and it happened again and again and my guess is it happens to everyone where you know, the first day of school in high school or middle school or or your college class, you look around, and you see someone who you think is attractive. You're like, "Wow, they look great." And it's amazing how intuitively you talk yourself into thinking that they must have all these other wonderful characteristics too.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, they're so beautiful, they're so handsome. Therefore, they must be nice. They must be smart. They must be charming. They must be kind. They're probably a Christian, you know. If you're a Christian, you think they're probably a Christian. How could they not be? They're so cute, you know. (laughs) And and it's interesting because I remember, I I actually got I I would realize this about myself, and I would play this little game where I would try to guess who would I still find somewhat attractive by the end of this class. You know, by the end (laughs) of that's the most Steve Hobbs thing
0: I've ever heard.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful and i must confess i have done very similar things because i'm yeah. like because if once you do recognize that you're like wait that can't be true this can't like, be right wonder, yeah when i actually see really people i think are super attractive, my first thought is nope i can't find them attractive i have to wait to see if they actually have other redeeming qualities
3: right because because what you learned is that 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 outside initial attraction sexual attraction Really says very little about how desirable they're going to be in the long term. Yes. And that person that you found overwhelmingly attractive, and you couldn't keep your eyes off of, by the time you've you know seen how they perform on their tests, the way they show up late for class, the way they don't always <laughs> bathe, in the way that is so desirable, you know the kind of answers <laughs> that they provide to to what should be obvious questions. By the end of the class, you're thinking, what was wrong with me in that first day? And by the way, that person that was sitting behind me that I didn't notice, who was maybe perhaps initially more average for whatever reason in my attraction, really has piqued my interest a lot more because I've gotten to know them and their, their characteristics make me much more inclined to be attracted to them um, in every way, including sexually, perhaps.
1: yeah that's, it. that's so good and i think i mean as i said kind of going through that deconstructionist journey in my own mind i think it can really help reshape like you've both said the way that we see ourselves of people we are so much more like we're so dynamic and comprehensive like made an image of god so it's like wow we there's so many other areas to explore and attraction is so important And like you said like we find what actually is going to have that long-lasting um, or even yeah just more of like integrous part of our uh, attractions that will carry us through once you know appearance shifts or if there's time spent and you realize like you know intellect is really attractive to me or sense of humor or whatever it is that will be more steadfast than our than our aesthetic appeal and to give that same kind of uh perspective towards ourselves i think is really it's important it's really important
3: yeah to develop our whole self Mm-hmm. And desirable, healthy characteristics that is ultimately sexually very appealing in the long run, mm-hmm. right? Which is why, even, um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I've been married 14 years. Uh, maybe you know, I guess we'd have to, you know, I, maybe I'm the specimen I was at 26 when I got married. Maybe I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I, I'll leave. I'll reserve judgment on that. Awesome. <laughs> right. But you know, I think it's fair to say that in in in, in God willing fifty more years when i'm ninety mm-hmm. um, I, it's it's probably going to be more obvious whether i'm this, the same specimen I was at twenty six but that doesn't mean that I will necessarily be any less attractive to my wife mm-hmm. um, and there's many elderly couples who have wonderful attraction uh, of every kind to each other, including sexually, and if it was just the outward that kept them the whole time, then as soon as that outward started to diminish, their underlying connection would have been lost as
2: well.
1: Mm. That's so good. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, So kind of coming around to a a little bit of a different sort of question um, and back to what what kind of happens when, we, when we're when we working through all of these things and we're, we're gleaning a healthy perspective that we, we maybe enter a relationship with someone where we, we still carry a bit of um, a sexual past that we might either consider shameful or we considered like we engaged in sexual behavior outside of marriage and we're ready to, you know, or we're in a new relationship where we're like, all right, we want to reset some of those things for ourselves. As we're shaping our view when is when is it appropriate to talk about that with someone that you're dating especially if you if you're trying to align as we've said with our integrative selves and wanting to have a healthy relationship when when do we bring that up to our partners and how important is it to share certain parts of our our sexual past
0: i think something
1: that's uh,
0: something that's unique here is is it um what is the goal of your relationship? What, what is the goal of your relationship? Um, if, because depending on your goal, maybe you don't share it, because <laughs> it wouldn't be helpful. But if your goal is for something like what Steve just mentioned about being that old couple, <laughs> like then there's a level of intimacy that is needed. Um, but I, I have always used the idea of manual transmission you be be in the gear you're in, um, and talk about the things you should talk about. If you're in first gear, don't be thinking like you're in third gear, because um, that's going to be troublesome. And so, uh, it's honestly a matter of self reflection and talking through uh, with your your partner what what. It's a, it's an assessing where you're at with your partner. I think you know because some people can have that conversation before they even start dating, and and it's actually a part of what draws them together into dating that honesty and intimacy and the way they're cared for in that moment and seen beyond what that was or or the hope that's there like for other people um, it, it kind of depends on how your relationship was built and then a matter of where is that relationship going so there, i don't really have an answer i guess uh, a definitive answer of this is when or how you know 3 months after 7 fancy dates
2: that's when <laughs> <laughs> <It's>, uh, <yeah. laughs> oh that's funny yeah i you know i sort of scratched my head at this one it's a good question um and uh of course um one that uh many are asking um it sort of assumes at least the way i read the question or understood it is that it assumes that um uh you know at least i think in the context of a uh dating relationship right and it's like when when is it okay to to bring this up. And yeah, you know, I don't really have an answer either. I think, um, I think, you know, of course, a therapist a response. Well, it depends, right? Um, it depends on, I think, um, your own boundaries.
1: Mm-hmm. I
2: think this is really a boundaries question. Um, yeah. and, and you get to decide what your boundaries are. Um, I think of a boundary as, um, um, how much uh, you allow people to affect you uh, or that is how much you you take in um, but also how much you uh, let out and, and reveal of yourself um, and and that can vary with the relationships that we have um, so a lot does depend I think on um, how you feel about the relationship that you're in uh, is it emotionally safe do you feel that you can trust that person um, Uh, what's, what's the purpose of revealing this information? Why are you, um, considering that? Um, uh, like Brian said, where is your relationship going? Um, so thinking through that and, and then, um, deciding to share this is, is always going to be, you know, in terms of, um, uh intimacy and and, um, connection this this sort of bonding that we've been talking about it's it's going to be a very vulnerable experience probably uh to share this information um and so it's um something that uh you know i'd encourage if you're asking yourself this question to do so with uh uh with with care and with caution
3: yes i would agree i uh, i love the analogy brian you had of the uh The manual gear shift in the car. I think that's really good. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say, when is it appropriate to share about your history? I would say um, that you share enough to you share just enough to plan for the next healthy step in your relationship. Yeah. Mm. Right. So you have, and and to do that, you have to know we have to be aligned in what our goal for this relationship is, and we have to both be agreed that we're that we're ready to do that. Mm. Um, I would I would caution people. Don't share things out of desperation to try to manufacture intimacy. That's, that's not going to work out well. You're, you're, you're putting yourself at risk of too, you're putting yourself at risk just way too much. Um, not dissimilarly to the, that's not dissimilar to the caution I would make for people who would say, um, for the kind of risk you take if you have sex with someone too soon,
0: yeah. right?
3: You don't use any kind of int- intimate act to create intimacy. It doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Intimate acts should be a way to honor the intimacy that's, that's already present, that you've taken a long time to build. Um, yeah, so don't do it out of desperation. Don't use it to create intimacy or to take the next step. Do it once you are comfortably ready to honor the intimacy that you've created in other ways, in more safe ways.
1: That's really good. And I think it, I love that we're talking about, yeah, just like health and healthy boundary and how it, it is not always so definitive as a, as like a blanket measure. Um, but I think you're hitting on something that actually leads into our next question on emotional intimacy. Cause there's, there's many different types of, intimacy as we've said um and just really the question is what what does it look like um to breach emotional intimacy or kind of go beyond a boundary of emotional intimacy because if we're talking about dating or we're talking about even in our singleness and how we interact with people where there is either sexual interest or attraction or even just the potential of that emotional intimacy can play into that and then how how does um, emotional intimacy or how emotionally intimate should you be with someone that you're not married to? And why does it matter that, that we take in account emotional intimacy along with physical intimacy?
3: I can, I'll speak to this a little bit first. Um, I think a breach of intimacy, whether it's emotional intimacy or, or otherwise is a betrayal of, of, an, of a commitment, mm. right? To be intimate with someone, there's a, explicit or implicit commitment and when that commitment is broken we feel betrayed Mm. because of how much we've invested that we now realize maybe should not have been invested Mm. Um, and in relationships that one of the one of the things that leads to is is emotional pain Um, the more intimate you are with a person the more you risk attaching yourself to someone who may hurt you, and I would, I would go further than that, who will eventually hurt you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: So you wanna make sure that if you're being intimate with someone and, and taking on behaviors of intimacy, that you're attaching to someone who's, who, when they cause you pain, it will not be devastating to you or to your relationship. You want to develop enough intimacy to be able to assess how aligned you are as a couple to make sure you're a good fit but you don't want to be so intimate that you risk connecting to someone who uh, you ultimately will choose to leave and therefore you'll experience unnecessary pain or that you ultimately won't leave but you really should leave because you're so you're not leaving because you're so attached to them, but you should leave because they're not healthy for you. Yeah.
0: It, it
3: feels, I think
0: a lot of it comes back to some of what, uh, to what Jeremy was talking about with boundaries and, and what are the boundaries we hold for those protections for those, like this is the boundary that is appropriate for the state of our relationship. Um, and so for um, very practically, I think something um you can, it's similar to the revealing past sexual experiences with your partner um, or someone you're dating. Um, at certain points along the way, you can have conversations that don't entail having the entire conversation to kind of gauge where you're at. You can, you can tell, tell, tell someone, you know, there's something about my past that I want to share with you one day. I don't know if today is that day but one day I would like to tell you about my relationship with my father and what that looked like. And, and through sharing that, you'll get a glimpse into how they're going to respond. Um, and you can start priming that pump a little bit to see, to see where you're at and to see how, if it is safe um, to go further, um, whether in that moment or another day. And maybe that's even a good thing to leave it as another day. Cause then you have time to kind of process and continue to navigate. How much further do I want to go?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Mhm. Mhm. That's really good. I like that. Um declarative um self-defining statement. Um Brian, that's a great example and and what I mean by that is um declarative saying something like uh, this is important to me. I'd like to do this or I I need this. This is um uh, something I want to do with you. Um but as you said, maybe not today. Maybe not yet. Um you know, I understood. Uh, circling back to uh, the, the the question here, um, I understood this question to be wondering about what does emotional intimacy, um, what does a breach of emotional intimacy actually look like? Um, and the the answer to that is that um, again, it depends. I think it um, depends on the uh, agreement that. Because I think the question is asking um or or I sort of imagine um the the individual asking this question you know um, that he or she may be finding themselves um, growing closer to someone who is in a committed relationship, and they may be wondering about well, how close should I get, how close do I get um, and I would I would guess and, and of course there's there's always more information that um that would be helpful here but I would guess that if you're asking the question um if something like this is coming up for you if you have this concern you might be in some possible danger already mm. because to to have felt the concern or or the um fear that you might be coming more uh, emotionally intimate than what is appropriate um it's, it's pro- It probably means for you that you're becoming close to someone who is, um, first of all, already in a committed relationship and therefore really not going to be able to match the kind of, um, or at least appropriately, match the kind of emotional intimacy that you're looking for. Um, but that also that you're participating in um, a breach of their agreement in in their relationship. And and uh, and that's going to um, probably create feelings of uh, guilt for you and um, and and in them, so that the the relationship then is is built around um, this sort of implicit secret um, that the two of you are sharing. Um, that can create a very unhealthy kind of intensity that is going to um, sabotage the relationship. It's not good, so how close should you be well um, you know if you're if you're if this person is anything more or or you feel could become more or you perhaps there's some desire for it to become more than a friendship then I, I think that um, uh, that that might raise some some red flags.
1: Mm-hmm thank you and actually that was that was one of the conversations that uh helped mm-hmm. form that question mm-hmm. and so I think you I think that is something to be definitely cautious of and I would speak even as um just a a single woman who interacts i think more in my mind that goes to like how I interact with other single men, obviously married men as well. I think to me that's been more of like or just, like, less of an area of, like, oh, yeah, I would, but there's clear, there's usually clear boundaries there, because mm-hmm. um, I've had those healthy conversations um, and, in relationships, but I think I keep that in mind even when I'm talking to single men and talking to people of, like, okay, if I have to start asking this, it's either going to merit a conversation, like, we joke, especially, I think, in the Christian sub- subculture about, like, DTR determining or defining the relationship, mm-hmm. but I think, I had a pastor once tell me that oh, your level of commitment and your level of communication should start matching at some point. And that has just been a barometer I've used, um, in all my relationships with, with men, with women, uh, and, you know, codependency being a thing, but just making sure that emotional gauge, cause I, I have breached, you know, emotional boundaries about communicating that with certain men. And that's where things can get complicated or you're, you're misunderstood or you know just keeping that gauge on our, our own selves um, and talking about it um, openly is so is so important or going and you know having a, a wise sounding board to be like hey I have a relationship with this person this is how much we communicate um, I know I have that with some girls in discipleship right now I'm like here's some you know like here's some men in my life do you want to read my text message do you want it can you give me some feedback like here's how often we're communicating, even if they're, you know, single men my age, um, just to make sure, and that might seem kind of, like, hyper critical to some people, but I think for my own self, I've, I've seen, I've had blind spots in those areas, Um, and I know with, like, Brian Williams and I, like, we've talked about that, and we've talked about with Amy, of, like, there's Mm -hmm. days where he's been, like, you know what, I'll ask him a question, even if it's just, like, how are you doing, and he'll be, like, I want to talk to Amy first, or, like, you know what, we're having this podcast, so like, I want to make sure you're okay, and you could speak when there's things that you feel are too fine. I think that that has helped our our friendship and our, our you know, our co-workership um, so much uh, on that front, When and with you guys, too, as being married men, just being able to voice that is, is the transparency that leads to accountability and helps set those healthy relationships, but in singleness, too, and with other single people, I think just to be aware of that because it can be bonding, because it could be potentially harmful, it can be misleading for yourself and other people and lead to emotional harm or bonding that it, you didn't mean for. So um, I'm glad this I'm glad this question was asked.
3: Yeah, and I just wanna follow up on that. I agree with all of that. I would also say um, all of us need to be cautious about, not just uh, for singles uh, and for marrieds, don't mm-hmm. assume that because someone else is partnered up, married or in a committed relationship, that the boundary is is automatic
1: Mm right
3: they got a ring on or they got a ring on so therefore i don't have to worry about it Mm right because unfortunately that's obviously not true as you think about it because there's such a thing as adultery Um, (laughs) for but for some people who have had for some people who've had traumatic experiences or have i've had unhealthy relationships or relationship patterns the committed person is actually the safe person but their commitment is, but it's only safe when they're committed to someone else. Mm. Right? So I can go after that married person because I know I never, the likelihood of me ever having to commit to them is is lower than, for example, for a single person. Mm. So I can keep those things secret. I can keep the intensity of, of, of our relationship uh, at a very high level. And for some people, they will actually be drawn to that. So I would say whether you're single or not, be cautious about those boundaries uh, with, with other people, whether they're single or not.
1: That's good Steve. thank you. Yeah, definitely.
3: Um,
0: well, there's one last question here that I think, Sarah, you'd probably be a great person to answer um, this one, um, and that is, how do you share a differing moral viewpoint with friends engaging in sexual contact you would deem as unhealthy?
1: Yeah, that's really good. And I mean, even before we had this this podcast that we're putting together, I got to sit down with um, just some of my closest friends, where I know that we don't perfectly see eye to eye on at least the, the origin or the context of these uh, these topics. And what I would say, and what I've tried to learn to do, is just go into those conversations. Um, like it's okay to be to be firm in what you believe, and to say like this is the way I'm living my life and not in like a morally relativistic way of like what's good for you it's good for me because that that starts to underwrite what you know what universal truth is if the integrity of our um of what we do believe but I would say just be willing to listen and ask questions um to really be able to get to the heart of you know, if someone is saying like, you know, I don't find a problem with having sex outside of marriage or, you know, I have, you know, I have many friends who have different sexual preferences than what I think is is typically deemed like appropriate, <laughs> like friends from the LBGTQ plus community. And it's, I think it's really easy to go on on the defense to say like, you have to defend your points when you're in those arguments, especially cause you feel like you have to defend Jesus or something along those lines instead of knowing that God, that Jesus does enter with us into those conversations and um, to be, to be a good question asker um, and then to be, be unafraid to offer points that may counter and make, um, even cause a little bit of discomfort, but to not, to not go in with uh, the understanding if you want to win the argument more than you want to see and hear the person in front of you, to not lose that sense of uh, compassion or, or humanness and to know that it, it's it's not going to be done in, in one conversation typically. <laughs> like, even like, think about someone trying to present something that seems foreign to you, or something that maybe is triggering or has a lot of hurt attached, um, such as you know having friends who have been hurt by the church in the area of the narrative around sexuality or sex. It's it's not it's it's a long haul thing, and it's a commitment that we take prayerfully, and it's something that we go in again. Um, really see trying to put that person and their value before your your victory in that moment of of an argument or putting your point forward because that's really gonna it's not actually gonna win the hearts of anyone Um, and that's that's not really the goal in that moment and just to be committed to holding space with people and also to be teachable yourself I've learned so much from friends who have either had different experiences, or you know, walked different lives, um, or made different choices than I have, and it's typically not black and white, and something that we have to enter with the Holy Spirit. Um, so I don't know if that's like a perfect answer, but just be willing to have those conversations, and and to invite people into spaces that might be a little bit different for them, and invite be invited into spaces that might feel different or maybe a little uncomfortable for you, because I think our you know integrity and truth and faith can can withstand those things and we have to be we have to be teachable as well if we're willing if we want to to teach others or if we want to really come alongside and care for others.
3: Yeah the the way I agree with you the way that I've uh, I've uh, wise people have helped me to think about this is when there's when there's disagreement don't pursue the clarity about the disagreement don't pursue agreement right Mm. so don't make the goal that at the end of this conversation we're gonna be we're gonna have the same view right instead see if you can respectfully identify where you agree and where you disagree Mm. and that's that's good enough
1: yeah well said Steve I love your confusion Mm -hmm. (laughs) it helps so much
2: yeah i think um going into these kind of dialogues um and uh, choose that word very intentionally dialogue um mm-hmm. purposefully entering into a conversation like that with the hope and intention of uh making it a an exchange of your perspectives um is only going to, first of all, it's going only going to help you feel uh, understood yourself and feel heard because it's going to help you then present um, what's true for you in a way that is going to make it more likely that you will be heard by the other person. Um, but it's also going to um, help you be open. Uh, I think you used the word teachable. I think it's um, uh, certainly that. And um, and that's going to create the kind of dialogue that um, I, I think is going to uh, be be positive and beneficial for everyone involved.
1: That's good. Yeah. Well, I think that is a beautiful way to end. As we want to move forward into and in, into holding these conversations, um, we're learning, and it's so cool to get to practice that with you guys. Um, thank you all for those who submitted questions we want to continue to receive your questions and to hopefully weave them into our conversation and dialogue Um, we're passing it forward so thank you for listening thank you for continuing on with us prayerfully and considerately um, with those in your life so thank you guys and until the next talk Thank you guys so much for tuning in for another episode Um, i know that brian and i are just deeply grateful to be having this conversation in and for our community we want you to know that we definitely didn't get to hit on every single question that was submitted to us there's actually some i know that um, both jeremy and steve really want to get to. So we are <laughs> making a commitment to say we want to continue to address these com- these conversations and these questions that are important to you. And please keep asking them. We want this mm-hmm. to be an ongoing conversation and it is a priority for us um, to incorporate those in episodes to come. But we just appreciate your guys' vulnerability and transparency and for joining us in this.
0: Absolutely. So if you have any further questions or as we keep going, we have more episodes to come, but um, even after this one, please send us your questions. It's really, really helpful um, because it is all of us going through it together. So either email me at brian.williams at calvarywestlake.org or sarah at sarah.sarwinski at calvarywestlake.org. Um, You can also, if you've got our numbers, text us or uh, DM the YA Instagram at cowboy underscore um, with questions you have um, based on these podcasts or based on just questions you got related to sex and sexuality. So we'd love to answer them until next time. We look forward to talking with you guys. We'll see you later.